John chapter 19. Uh, this is an interesting uh, subject we're going to be dealing with tonight uh, for a few minutes. And I appreciate you all coming. As you can tell, those of you online, uh, we're getting ready for uh, our first ever Hollywood production of something with Christmas. I don't know what it is. But anyway, it involves all of our kids. I can tell they were excited about it. I've never heard more screaming in my life than I did today. So they're looking forward to it. That'll be this Sunday. Looking forward to it. All right, John chapter 19. Um, we're going we're gonna to touch on verse 38 twice in the lesson tonight if I, if I get to it. Um, but let's look at this passage of scripture, John chapter 19, verse 38. Christ has already died. They know that they have to uh, get his body down off the cross in time before sundown or they'll be in violation of the law. And, um, and so this, everything about Christ had to fulfill the law. So in verse 38, and after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus. Now notice this, and I have this underlined, we're going to come back to it later. But secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. And he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now you had to understand, this was no cheap stuff. This wasn't dollar gentral type stuff. Okay, this was very, very expensive mixture of myrrh and aloes. This, basically, they don't embalm the bodies. They simply, um, and I don't know exactly what all of these uh, different compounds would do, um, but anyway, they compounded together somehow, some way, and then rubbed all over the exterior of the body of Christ and uh, tried to at least preserve for a little while uh, the exterior of the body to try to cover up uh, the smell of Jesus' body. But was that necessary? Did they have to cover up the smell of Christ's body? Why not? He didn't corrupt. God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And that's something now. If we were to take, if we were to take the attributes of Christ and apply them to the attributes of the Bible... Because we believe that they are one and the same. That you cannot separate the physical person of Jesus Christ from the word of Jesus Christ. You cannot dif differentiate the two. They are one and the same. So, if God would not allow his holy one to see corruption, we know it refers to Jesus but could it also refer to the Word of God? And my answer is yes, a resounding yes. He, God did not allow His Word to see corruption. It's that simple. 
and you can't get hardly any minister, any preacher, no matter how conservative they are, no matter how fundamental they are or, or they appear, uh, very, very few men of God today reverence the Word of God as it is in, we believe, the King James and, and say to the world, this Bible is right. It, it has the exact words God wants in His Word. God did, and how long was Christ in the tomb? Yeah, it came out on the third day. So a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Matthew came up with something uh, this morning, didn't you, son, on that? Um, but anyway, day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And so here now for 2,000 years, for two days, God has not allowed his Holy One to see corruption. It's not going to be corrupt. There's not going to be a sentence wrong. There's not going to be a, a word translated wrong. There's not going to be anything like that in God's true word. Uh, let's move on. But anyway, so they had a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pound weight. Then, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices. Who in here has heard of the Shroud of Turin. Okay, let's hear what you have to say. Is that the burial shroud of Christ or not? Why do you say no, John? I mean, it looks like Jesus. I mean, I've seen paintings of Jesus and statues. Okay, I've seen hippies. Look at... Look at the words here. Verse 40. They took the body of Jesus, wound it. Look at this. Watch my hand. They wound it. And the Shroud of Turin is one long piece of cloth that extends beyond his foot, underneath, over the top, laid over the top of the, the body of Jesus, and it's one continuous cloth. The Bible specifically tells us in the other Gospels that there was one cloth that covered his body, one cloth that covered his head. Where's the cloth that covered his head? With the, as far as the Shroud of Turin goes, where is it? And common sense would tell you, and you can try this, Listen, you can try this at, with, uh, with Hope one night. You can get her to lay on a big long sheet, paint her body in blue paint, while the paint's still wet, fold that over her body, press it down, and then peel it off, let it up to dry. Would you see Hope's face and image on that sheet? No, John. No. Why? Because the image that's on the Shroud of Turin, and I'm not 100% sure how it was put on there. I, it, it, to, to me, it looks like a, a, a photographic negative. In fact, that's what they found out it was. And there's a process that was available some 500 years ago um, whereby you could expose something if you had prepared this cloth with the, the certain chemicals, you could expose it 
to an image of something over the course of a day, and that image would be on there like a photograph. And the thing with the cloth is it's laying not straight out like this. It's laying and it's covering the dips next to his nose, under his chin, his neck, and you would have a very bizarre image of what ended up being a person's face, but it wouldn't be recognizable as a person's face. It would definitely would not look like what it looks like. Definitely. And so uh, there's some that, you know, in the Da Vinci Code thing that believe that uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, figured out a way to make that. Uh, it's called a camera obscura, and um, that he had done that before, but there's some that, that was, say that his, that was his work that, that made that. And the face there on the, on the uh, shroud itself is not that of Jesus, but that of D Da Vinci. And there's a case to be made. There's, da Vinci was really good at drawing, and he was pretty good at drawing his own face. And his face looks a lot like that face on that cloth. But anyway, there's just, there, to me, there's just no way uh, that that really could realistically be uh, the image of Christ. And, and by the way, knowing God the way we do, would God allow an image of his son to be imprinted on a cloth knowing that as soon as certain people saw it, they would bow down to it, pray to it, adore it, want to touch it for, because they believed that that would give them merits with God, that would give them graces from God, and so on and so on. And there's just, I just don't see it. I just don't see God doing something like that or allowing something like that to be done. Uh, and so anyway, but clearly it was wound around his body like you would see a mummy wrapped up in a cloth, and that was basically to uh, press all the myrrh and aloes and all the creams and oils that they had to rub on his skin and basically press them into the skin and uh, let that uh, be sort of as, a, um, uh, as an odor damper, okay? Uh, but anyway, I just, I just don't believe it. I used to years ago when I was a teenager, but I'm just, nah, not, there's not a chance. Uh, so now in verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. In other words, it was very close to where they crucified Jesus. And uh, it, was, it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And um, so anyway, they just decided, what, let's just put it right in there. It's, I mean, we're running out of time, so let's put it in there. And, um, and then we'll seal it up, and that'll be the end of that. All right? But I want to go back up to verse 38 for now and, and look, at this, look at this verse. After this, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this man is a mighty man, I believe. I believe he's a very wealthy man. I believe, I believe that he is a God-fearing man. 
and that he loves the Lord, and obviously he loves Jesus and believes the things concerning Jesus. Um, it says here that he is a disciple of Jesus. So he would have heard most, if not all, of the teachings that Jesus had to give while he was here on this earth, including the idea that in three days he's going to rise from the dead. Now, he may not have understood that because none of the disciples really did, not until after it happened, but he would have heard those teachings and he would have taken them to heart. But... He is still a Jew. And um, he decides that what he's going to do uh, as far as Jesus' body is, he's going to do it in secret. He's going to do it sort of sub rosa in secret, in private. Why? Because he is afraid of not just the, the Jewish people, but specifically the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin, the head of the synagogue. He's afraid of the high priest um, who was, who was the high priest? Um, Caiaphas. He's very afraid of Caiaphas, I believe, and he doesn't really want it known right away that he is a disciple of Jesus. Because you remember, they went after Peter pretty hot and heavy the night that Jesus was arrested. And Peter himself had a very big problem admitting that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And you think about it, Peter was, if you look at the list of the disciples in the four Gospels, there's some uh, consistencies there. Every time you have a list of the names of the 12 apostles, Peter's name is always first. And it doesn't matter how the rest of them are put in there. Peter's name is always first. That means something. Incidentally, Judas's name was always last. And often it would say, uh, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray Christ? So it always sort of it always places Judah, Judas at the uh, tail end of the list, and Peter's always first. So Peter did have uh, just by the law of I don't know how to put this. Um, if you study uh, mankind, you study the the peculiarities of mankind's. Uh, behavior and so on, anytime there is a group of people, no matter how small or large the group is, there's always somebody, and you can see it in children too, there's always some boy or some girl whose leadership comes out, and, they, and whatever, the, whatever that person wants to do, the whole group does. They follow him or they follow her. And um, so I don't know why I'm going with all this, but anyway... Uh, you have, I think Joseph of Arimathea was a good man. I think he was a powerful man. I think he was a wealthy man, but he's afraid of the Jews and he's afraid of Caiaphas and he's afraid of the Sanhedrin and he's afraid of what they'll do to him. Now, here's where we're going tonight. Does he have anything to be afraid of? No. No, 
You see, the fear is, well, let's, let's move on. Turn, to, turn back to John 9. John 9. Jesus healed a blind man in John 9. And um, this is where, if you look in verse 6, Jesus spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle. It just looks funny to me. I don't know why, you know, I've tried to discern this method of healing someone from blindness. I don't quite understand the, uh, the nature of Jesus spitting in the ground and making uh, moist clay out of his spittle and dirt and rubbing that in his eyes. And he says, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he did, he washed, he washed his eyes, and when he opened them up, he could see everything. For the first time, he could see everything. And so, anyway, you've got uh, the people there surrounding him who knows this guy's been blind. Um, how can you, how, normally, how can you tell somebody's blind and have been blind for a long time? Yeah, you look at their eyes. And if they've been, they been blind all their life, uh, their eyes just almost, there's just no use there. There's not a lot of movement. If someone has been blind because of an accident or whatever, uh, they, they have a problem. You know, they, they can't look at certain things. They can't point their eyes in the right direction and so on. So it's easy to tell if somebody's blind or not. And uh, everybody knows he's blind. But now everybody's finding out that he's been healed. And so it comes down to, um, let's see here. Look at verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. And in other words, they're not going to let this miracle uh, just go around freely. They're going to they're cut it off. They're going to say, there's, there's no miracles like this. He probably wasn't even born blind. He probably wasn't even blind. The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. Now, this man is already, he's not a child anymore. He's a man. And um, so he can speak for himself. But look at what the parents did in verse 19. They asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. Now why did they do And to me, these two parents have a, have a very serious problem in their lives right now. The problem is they are more afraid of what the Jews will do to them if they give any testimony in favor of Jesus Christ. They're more in fear of the Jews than they 
are in love with their own son. They just threw their son under the bus. That's how we would say it. I don't know who came up with that one and who threw somebody under a bus, but that's, that's what that is. They said he can speak for himself. And they did that. Look at what it says. But by what means he now seeth, we know not, or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. Verse 22, these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, which means what? What does Christ mean? Hello? It's one of the simple questions of Christianity. <laughs> Huh? Anointed. That's the Greek word of the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay? It's Christ, anointed. For, uh, but anyway, that he, if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. We'll throw him out. Now, again, I'm, I'm laying a lot of charges against this man's parents. Because again... You would think that they would be both in tears that their son now can see. And their son now can, he can earn his own way through life. He can get married. He, can, he doesn't have to be a beggar. He doesn't have to depend on mom and dad. He doesn't need anybody to lead him about. He can see now. And you would think that they would be absolutely so elated but when the question came to them, how did this, your son, get his sight? They immediately put the question off on their son and said to them, you ask him. We don't know how it happened. You ask him. And they did that. They were scared to death to be put out of the synagogues. Now, here's where I'm going with this. It is obvious that the teachings that have been done and put into the synagogues, number one, are not the words of God. They are the traditions of the Jews, the rabbis. They are the, uh, the teachings of the traditions of the rabbis. Uh, and that's what Jesus was getting at. When he said that you have through your traditions made void the law of God. In other words, you've canceled it out. You've got so many loopholes built into the law that, you know, the, the law of Sabbath day says you, you, you can't go, you can't travel on the Sabbath day. Well, then they invented a Sabbath day journey. This is how far you can go on the Sabbath day. And so they would fulfill the Sabbath day journey and they'd sit down and rest a while. And then they get up, pack everything up, and walk another Sabbath day journey and sit down. You think I've been smoking all my life, haven't you? I've just always thought it was fun. I watched people that smoke when I was young. I just always thought it was funny how they did it. Okay? Some, some are like this. Anyway. My, my favorite. I don't have a pen. When they get it in their mouth and they 
they hold it right there and then they start talking and it's going blah, 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 like that. That's my favorite one. But anyway, um, they had, the, the Jews had basically made it a law, an unwritten law, but a law nonetheless, that if you were not part of the synagogue, you were not a true Jew and you were not going to heaven. In other words, they had placed man's salvation right into the hands of the leaders of the synagogue, the rabbis, and the Sanhedrin. They were saying that we determine who is saved and who isn't. And now that this Jesus has come along, we're going to tell everybody, if we hear you, or even hear of you, if somebody comes and tells us that you have made a favorable comment about this Jesus, this Galilean, if you make some favorable comment about him being the Christ, the Messiah, then we will put you out of the synagogue and basically saying to them, you're going to hell. Because we, we, determined your salvation. We did it. Um, some of you might remember this. Um, there's a Catholic church in the St. Louis area, St. Stanislaus Catholic Church. It's a Polish Catholic congregation. And I, I read up on them, and I, I don't remember everything that I read, but I do know that when they first formed their church back in the, I think, late 1800s or something like that, they, were, uh, they owned their own land. They owned the building. They built it themselves. Um, you know, those families there, those Pol Polish families, number one, they were Catholic, and number two, they were Polish, and they stuck together. And they built this church, and they and their children and their children's children and their children's children's children all went to that church. They were all confirmed in that church. They were baptized in that church. They were, uh, they were married in that church. They had their funerals in that church, and their whole life. And you know how, you know how different groups of people, like the Italians or the Germans or the Poles or the, uh, uh, the um, Oh, who is it that's in the St. Louis area? Uh, the uh, Bosnians, they all stick together. They stick together like glue. If you don't believe that, go up on the hill and try to, try to buy a house on the hill not being Italian. It ain't happening. You're not going to get up there. But anyway, so they, they had this church and they were doing quite well for themselves. They had, they had a very, very expensive piece of land there that the church was on. Of course, the church building itself, with all that gold and all that, you know, that eye candy in there, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of wealth. Plus, they had a few million in the bank that they had collected over the years so that anything that needed to be done with the church, repairs or whatnot, Maintenance on the building, they were going to use their money and, and keep it. Well, uh, if you remember back in the 90s, um, St. Louis got a new archbishop. It uh, was Justin Regali. He went to be like a, a top man in the Vatican. And they had uh, 
Cardinal Edmund Burke, I think is what his name. And Burke was like a bulldog. And um, during that time, the Catholic Church was getting hit with all these lawsuits from all these pedophile priests, and they were needing money. And so Archbishop Burke wrote a letter to St. Stanislaus Church and said, um, you know, we understand your history, we understand you love your church, we understand all these things, but there's a problem. Uh, you're really not being obedient to the Archdiocese of St. Louis. And so what we're going to ask you to do is sign over your building, sign over your bank account, and sign over everything that this church owns to the Archdiocese. And they wrote him a letter back and they said, but that's going to hurt us. Because, I mean, we got this money saved up. You know, this place, this old building here, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful building. It's a, it's a you know, historic place. It's been around for a hundred some odd years. Uh, it's, not, it's not cheap to repair the roof on this thing. And so we keeping that money in there. for. And so the archdiocese wrote a letter back saying, don't worry. Don't worry. If you need any money, we'll loan it to you. I'm kidding you not. The, the, that church had a board of trustees. And those men got together and they said, we're not going to do that. So the archdiocese wrote back and said, if you don't, I'm going to pull your priest out and I'm going to excommunicate everybody on that board. Now, excommunication in the Catholic church is a death sentence. It is, you are going to hell, period. On whose say so? Archbishop. One man can declare that these men are going to hell because they were, they were kicked out of the mother church. Catholics teach that there, there is salvation only in the mother Catholic church, period, the end. And so they said, we're still not doing it. There was one guy that was a holdout. I think he sided with Burke. He got scared. That's what it was. He got scared. So, they, so Burke pulled their priest. Well, you know, them Polskis. Name me a city somewhere close by where there's a bunch of Polish Catholic people. Chicago. The Bears. And so, yeah. So they called, they called a guy up there and they said, come down and be our priest. He said, sure, I'll be right down. Now, according to canon law, even though he's the priest there and he's giving them communion, it doesn't count because he's not in favor with the archdiocese. So he can give them all the wafers and they can drink all the wine that they want to. They're still not going. Those people are doomed to hell because that priest is not sanctioned by the Catholic Church. Eventually, the trustee board of that church, I think they lost. I think they lost. I haven't followed up, but to me, that just, it boils my blood. It boils my blood. We received a, and I won't say a, a I'll, I'll say a similar letter several years ago 
Um, we just decided as a church that being in a denomination that was not benefiting us, all they wanted was our money, which at the time wasn't much. And uh, we had decided that we weren't going to have a quarterly meeting and have some preacher come in here in our church to stand behind our pulpit and pull out an NIV and preach out of it. It wasn't going to happen. And so we just decided to slip out. And we informed the uh, St. Louis District, I think is who we were with at that time, uh, that we were, not, we were no longer going to be considered to be part of that district. And then several years later, uh, and my name has been thrown around the whole state of Missouri uh, as being a rebel and a renegade and a crazy King James only guy. And uh, they, um, they sent us a letter. And they said, um, we're here to inform you that if you do not um, submit yourselves under the blanket of the Free Will Baptist denomination uh, in the state of Missouri, then you stand um, in danger of losing your tax-exempt status and so you probably need to come back into the denomination. Now, threatening me by saying, if you don't come back, you're going to lose your tax exempt status. Threatening me was not the way to do it. I don't know who decided to write that letter, but that was the dumbest, dumb move that's ever been dummy done before. And um, so I talked to Jan Shirk. H&R Block, and I said, I showed her the letter. She said, the guy's crazy. She said, you're a church. That's all you need. State of Missouri, you're a church. We fill out uh, papers every year, and we send it off to Jefferson City, declaring our status as a, an exempt religious organization. And uh, we are incorporated that way. And uh, no, it's not a 501c3 either. It's just we're a church. We don't need any of that. We're a church. You can't, they don't tax churches, period, the end. And uh, so when I received that letter, that just, that just went all over me. To me, it, was, it, was, it wasn't quite the same, but it was very similar to that. They were basically saying to us, well, you're not going to be like us, and we're not going to be like you, and, and you're not going to get to participate in anything that we do because uh, we don't like you anymore. And so... It happens, it happens in what you would think would be decent Bible-believing denominations. It happens, oh, listen to me. It happens a lot in fundamentalism. The fundamentalist people, Baptists and so on, they affix all of these rules that everybody has to abide by. Uh, the length of hair, the length of address, the length of this and... and uh, it almost gets to the point there are some churches who are in so in fear of their pastor that they will not, they will not buy a house unless their pastor gives them permission. That, to, that to me, that is, you know, I, my, my thing on this is if you want to buy a house, buy a house. Buy me one too. I mean, that's just simple, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, that happens more than you think. It's in the Catholic Church, it's in the Mormon Church. If their ideas, if you get kicked out of the Mormon, this is what made Brady and Bradley both. They were scared to death. I saw Brady 
very scared one time because uh, he and I had been talking. This is while he was still Jehovah's Witness. He called me one time and he said, can I ask you to do me a favor? I said, what's that? He said, if anybody from our uh, group over here in Cedar Hill, if they uh, come to your door, do me a favor and don't mention my name. And he was scared. And I asked him later, I said, you know, Brady, you put an image of my mind that if I would have mentioned your name, the next time you would have had service with them, they would have pulled you back in a room somewhere and had a big, long talk with you. And he said, that's exactly what would happen. And he said, both of those, both of those boys were kicked out of the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witness church over a girl that they were dating. And that girl was not approved by either of the churches. Funny thing is, they didn't date them that long. But that was one of the ways that God was leading them out of those cults there. But those people, and, and Bradley floored me when he told me, he said, yeah, when I confessed my sins to our bishop there, I went, do what? He said, uh, yeah, we have to confess our sins to our bishop. And I looked, right in, I looked him right in the eye and I said, I guarantee you, you don't tell him everything, do you? And he looked down. And he said, no. And I said, why not? I knew the answer. He said, because I'm afraid. And I said, hmm, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. And he finished the, sentence, he finished the verse for me. He knew exactly what it was. And it was right after that he gave his life to the Lord. But I'm telling you, that happens in, in just about every religious circle that there is. I don't care if it's Buddhism. I don't care if it's Islam. I don't care if it's Judaism. I don't care if it's different branches of Christianity, different denominations. If they kick you out, according to them, you're not going to heaven. You're not saved. You're not part of the faithful people because you decided to stand against them. Um, one of the so-called founders of the Free Will Baptist movement back in the late 1700s was a man by the name of Benjamin Randall. Benjamin Randall was reading the Bible, and they, he was a good preacher, and all, some of the churches that he was around there in New Hampshire, um, they really took a liking to him, and he was often preaching behind their pulpits, but somebody noticed that he was not preaching Calvinism, and all these churches were Calvinistic, and they pulled him aside and had a... Had a a meeting with him and he said they said why are you not teaching and preaching the doctrines of Calvin and he simply said because I don't believe them well that made them mad and they put him out so you know what he did start his own church okay start his own church and this this stuff goes on let me let me go on with this they feared the Jews for the Jews had agreed already that if he man to confess that he was Christ he would be put out of the synagogue turn to Galatians chapter 4 very quickly I've just wanted to give you some examples of this. And I've, you've heard me say this before, but I'm, I'm going to reiterate it tonight. And I'm going to pound it, hopefully, into your heart. I'm going to ask the Holy Ghost to pound it even further than that. To where it's down in your cells and your DNA. And that there's just no way that uh, what man says to you is going to have any effect on you whatsoever. This is the story where the Apostle Paul is talking about Hagar and Sarah. And you remember the story, Hagar and Ishmael 
are mocking Sarah and Isaac. And uh, Hagar basically is, is playing, um, I guess, like a female dominance thing um, to where she's like, well, you've got your son. That's how sweet. Well, my son was the firstborn son. And I'm much younger than you anyway. And I think Abraham would rather be with me than to be. I mean, she was, she was coming out with something that was really driving Sarah up the wall. And Sarah finally went to Abraham and said, Abraham, it's, you've got to get rid of her. And so when Abraham went before God, God said, do it. Put her out. And so the whole allegory of that was, was that Hagar and Ishmael represent the Jews who uh, are part of the Mount Sinai covenant. It's a covenant of death. They're in bondage. And just because uh, Hagar had a son by Abraham, Hagar is a slave. And by, I guess by law, her son is a slave son. And there's no way around it. She's an Egyptian. And so he's clearly Egyptian, and so there's no way around it. He is, he is a slave. Meanwhile, you have Isaac. Isaac was born of a free woman, Sarah. And so Sarah's free, and Isaac is free. And now, Paul says this in 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. They are always going to persecute us. They are always going to bash us. They are always going to try to destroy us, to cause us to compromise, to ruin the message that we have. They do not want the gospel told the way the Bible tells it because it causes them to lose their dominance over man's souls. And I'll tell you something, in religious circles all over the earth, religion is a more powerful form of dominance than government is. Because people, you can say, well, you broke the laws of government. We're going to have to take away your life. Okay. Uh, but when somebody says, you broke the laws of God, you're going to lose your soul. That's eternal. And people will do all kinds of things because they're in fear that they're going to lose their salvation. They're going to lose their soul. So, but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. It's the same way it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman, and it, I like this. I just now caught this. Instead of the bondwoman and her son... The synagogue saying, we'll cast you out. If you confess Jesus, here's Paul saying, oh no, they're not casting you out. You cast her out. Amen? You don't, you don't let them throw you out. You leave. Amen. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And I'm here to tell you there is always going to be a persecution. There is always going to be a hatred. There is always going to be uh, activity behind the scenes to bring everybody and their soul under the dominion of 
what eventually will turn out to be the man of sin, the son of perdition. And they will go after those who are born free. Mm-mm-mm. Uh, Let's see here. He should be. Yeah, I already, already. I don't know why I doubled that in my notes. Um, let me read these very quickly. Matthew six five. This is what Jesus had to say about the synagogues. Okay, they were corrupt. They were very corrupt. Imagine how much money do you think the Catholic Church has? Billions billions when Pope John Paul the first became Pope in 1978 he was made aware and he probably already knew this he was made aware that there was money laundering from uh, secret societies and from the Italian mafia groups there was money laundering going on in the Vatican banks. And the Vatican, basically, when you launder, launder some criminal organization's money, obviously, you're going to get to keep some of it. That's why you do it. Uh, it goes on, and, and when Albino Luciani, Pope John Paul I, when he found out about the money laundering, and it, it involved uh, a Chicago uh, bishop by the name of Paul Marcinkus. Chicago, what does that tell you? Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Um, it, it involved uh, the head of the Vatican Bank, it involved the Vatican Secretary of State at that time, Cardinal Jean Villo, I believe is who his name was. Uh, but anyway, it involved all these high-ranking people in the Vatican. And the story is that John Paul I was going to have a heads-will-roll meeting and fire a bunch of people and remove them from their position. He was going to clean up the Vatican banks. And 33 days after he became Pope, he died. And they did not even allow an autopsy of his death. Because the, even though the laws of Italy would have required an autopsy to find out why he died, the Vatican is its own country. They're not under Italian law. They're under Vatican law, canonical law. And so they said, we don't have to autopsy him. We're just, in fact, we'll just probably make him a saint. That'll, that'll look good. And um, so I, it, there has to be some reason why um, the Polish Pope um, named himself John Paul II after John Paul I. And I don't know what that was all about. But anyway, uh, let me read this again. Uh, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. In other words, these men... All they want is for you to look at them and, and think, oh, these holy men, oh, they're so holy, oh, they're so righteous. I did that when I was a young man. Matthew 10, 17, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you where? In their, skin, in their synagogues. 
Was, did Jesus know anything about this? Sure, they delivered him up to the councils and he was scourged in the synagogue. Mark 20, 12, verse 38. And he said unto them, look at this, look at this. They, he said unto them in his doctrine, beware the scribes which love to go in long clothing. What is that? Robes. This is why I don't wear robes. We don't wear robes. We ain't wearing robes. Amen. They love to go around in their long flowing robes with all of the, uh, the, the gold stitching on it and, and wear the big mitre and enjoy that, that rush of having power over those people. They love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplace. Hello, Father. Hello, Father. Hello, Father. Hello, Rabbi. And the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at the feast, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these shall receive greater damnation. So God's saying to us, when they threaten to put you out, put them out. And say... You know what? You're not worthy for me to worship with any of you. I'm not doing it. I'm going to follow the Lord. In fact, that was what the Great Migration was all about. 1619 to 1640, you had thousands of pilgrims leaving Europe and leaving the Church of Rome, the Church of England, and leaving all that power over there and coming over here and saying, you know what, we're going to make our living over here and we're going to worship how we want to. And nobody can stop us. And that's how it ought to be. Amen? Don't be afraid of what people say to you. Don't be afraid when people say you're not saved. You're not, and you, go, you go to that Bethel church, you're not saved. You listen to Mike Hoggard, you're not saved. I, that, listen, that's been going on for years. I've had, I've had to deal with it for most of my life. And uh, I just got to where I just don't care anymore. I just don't care. Amen. I have people, that, people that I grew up under and loved and admired and thought were the mighty men of God. Uh, one, of, one of them said, I just ain't got no confidence in Mike Hargan anymore. He left the denomination. And I'm going, you make it sound like I went out and blasphemed Jesus. Uh, and, I, and like I spit on a Bible or something like that. That's what they make it sound like. And I'm like, we don't need them. Amen. Amen.